Welcome to Chillin' with Kofi episode two. We got a great episode lined up for you. I'm here with one of my close friends, colleagues, Amanda Eisenberg. Tell the people about yourself. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for for having me. Um, So great introduction. My name is Amanda Eisenberg. I am the New York City healthcare reporter at Politico. And I've been covering the pandemic in New York City since February of 2020. 2020 yes. Thank you. It is a new year. It, it, I guess so. <laughs> it, kinda, it feels the same, though. It feels like January and February of 2020, like, go into 2019, like, the before times. Yeah. <laughs> and then before. March, for the most part, is uh, what we think about when we think about 2020. But it's funny because I was covering covid in February, and I thought it was going to be like Ebola, where I was like, that happens to people. Right. It doesn't affect my life. <laughs> right, right, right. And then it, it exploded in New York. So yeah, March is kind of like, I think, when it started, but it's funny to remember back to reporting on it in February. Okay, so before we get into the, the real questions, I want to have your self-promotion part here so that people can follow you and follow along as they listen to this podcast. So where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, that's great. Um, I spend too much time on Twitter, um, Mm -hmm. as I think a lot of people do. (laughs) Um, And I'm on Twitter at AEIS17, so AIs, did I say 17? You said one seven, so okay. AI, either one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's A E I S one seven. Um, I'm on Twitter there. I'm on Instagram there, and I have a website that's also A I S seventeen dot com. And so usually I'm tweeting about public health, complaining about the New York Jets, Fair. as as people do. <laughs> um, and I like talk a lot about books. Kind of because I'm working on a book, which is really exciting. Okay. I'm working on the novel. But then also I'm just like a voracious reader. I love talking to people about books, getting recommendations about books. I'm reading a book about baseball right now, which is kind of oh, do tell. off topic for me. Um, the book's called The Bronx is Burning. And it's about 1977, the feud between Billy Martin and Reggie Jackson. And I'm a Mets fan, so I really, I don't know anything about the Yankees. Yeah, Yeah, like, I have no idea. Um, But the book goes from, like, that feud and what was going on with the Yankees in 1977 with also the mayor's race that year between Ed Koch, who became mayor, and Mario Cuomo, who's Andrew Cuomo's father. Yeah. So it's fun because... I like sports, um, and I don't know much about the Yankees' history, so that's interesting. And then the mayor's race for 2021, the primary's coming up in June. So it's really fun to read like the history of New York City interspersed with baseball, and then they talk about how the New York Post became owned by Rupert Murdoch right. and became wow. like this Republican uh, idealism. Um, and it's it's fascinating. I am obsessed with this book. It's in my tote bag. I was reading it on the subway. Here. This seems jam packed. It's really good. It's like so, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I re- it's, I tweet about books, sports sometimes. Usually it's just like me retweeting you and Charles McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Charles. Shout out to Charles who would come back from the Jets oh, and tell man. me how bad they were playing, and then I'd be like, okay, cool. I, I knew this already, but I, thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad he's at a new. Job. Every day, every day. Charles, for those of you that don't know, he's my roommate and he also works at For the Win now. But he used to be a beat reporter for the New York Jets. Shout so, out to Charles. And so every time <laughs> that Charles would come home, he would just tell me about how bad the New York Jets were. But since he's a very analytical football, he's a football genius, he'll like break down the X's and O's of why they're that bad. Not just like, oh, they can't catch. It's like, no, their alignment's off and this other uh, more football jargon. And I'm just there with a beer in my hand being like, man, that's that's crazy. And I have like no idea what he's saying because he's just so smart about um, that topic. I would text him and ask him how my players on fantasy were doing and whether or not <laughs> I should start them. And I still came in last place. In our fantasy league. Oh, so so you have to write our... uh, So our fantasy league, guys, we have a punishment. It's a very light punishment. Um, You just have to write haikus about everybody else in the league. So, but you're you're a writer. Did you not see my bat mitzvah poem? No, I haven't read them yet. It's in the group chat. Oh, it's... (laughs) I rhymed, for, for the people, I rhymed daddy with Cincinnati. 
Oh, I have not read this. And it's I have great. Not read it is, I think, some of my finest work. Um, my boss is a Patriots fan, and we complain. We will chat. Yeah. Um, as rivals do. And I had told him that was my best work. But for anyone that's not familiar, for some bar or bat mitzvahs, they have a party. They have a big cake with candles, and they make rhymes. They they have, like, this rhyming poem, and then they bring up somebody to help light the candle with them. And oh. so that's where my talents lie. <laughs> <laughs> I can't write a haiku for shit. So this was oh, okay. this is what I what I did, and it's a work of art. So you can read it in the group me. I, I should I'll check it out. I'll definitely check it out after the podcast. I did not know this at all. I'm just learning about this right now. Yeah. Um, so Charles didn't help me in fantasy this year, but there's I, always next year. I mean, you draft Jets players. That's on you. Okay, I. I got, like, really good quarterbacks this year. And my, my only problem was I did not have any running backs. And then a bunch of my players were on the IR this That's season. Fair. They're also so, Jets players. Okay, how, how, many Jets, how many Jets players were there? I had Crowder on my starting, on my roster for a while. For okay, most fair. of the season. That's fair. Who's good. Yeah, he's good. It's just the rest of the team is not. Yes. That's not his fault. I mean, that weighs down the... I had to pick up yeah. Gore, though, like, on the waiver wire at one oh. point just because I had no <laughs> running backs. <laughs> I was like, um, and I did pick up Mims, and I never played him, but he was just on my on the yeah. bench at one point. But those are the only three Jets players I picked, and I did I picked I picked Crowder, I think, actually in our draft. Yeah, but that was it. Oh, okay. So I want to go back to Cuomo a little bit. Yeah, uh, I talked to him today. Bring it back. Um, you sit in on, well, virtually sit in on the Cuomo and Bill de Blasio briefings. And I want to kind of loop this into how has your daily routine changed from before the pandemic to during the pandemic? How has that changed? How's your daily routine looking like? Um, what's interesting is I don't think my work has changed that much, but life has changed. Right. So to kind of just give people an understanding of what I do. So I work at Politico, but I'm in the New York City Bureau. Our bureau is only like eight reporters. Okay. So it's a tiny, pretty much independent newsroom. I have an editor and a bureau chief. They're the ones who are telling us, this is what we're doing. This is how coverage is going to work out. Um, and mostly my coverage is for subscribers. So when people think about Politico, they think about politico.com, free content, all about DC. What I or who I typically write for are lobbyists, hospital executives, government officials who want to know about like the nitty gritty policy and then the gossipy politics part right. behind what's happening in New York. So I have a colleague up in Albany, so she mostly covers New York State and Cuomo unless Cuomo comes down to New York City and then he's on my turf. So then I cover the mayor um, and then the city council um, and other elements of health. So I cover health policy, which is anything from, you know, the board of health is coming up with these plans, the city council is introducing legislation. So when you walk into a Panera, you could see whether or not the food you like has added sugar on it. That's like a city council uh, bill that they might put forward. And then um, I write about like hospital finances, which hospitals are doing well, which ones are not doing well. And that's kind of the foundational work that people pay for. And they pay a lot of money to read that type of coverage. But then I get to do all the fun stuff, which is healthcare and the intersection with politics. Mm -hmm. So for like the New York City mayor's race, for example, uh, Eric Adams, who's the Brooklyn Borough president, is a vegan. He claims he cured his diabetes from eating salads. And he wants to push forward this public health kind of Bloomberg 2.0 vision for the city. Okay. So as a public health person, I get to ask him all these policy questions. What does that look like in practice? If you go up to the Bronx, where there's mostly people of color living there, and you only see McDonald's and no grocery stores, like, how can you fix that? What does the policy look like? Right. And so those are the things that I care about and pay attention to. So when, so that's, that's kind of like my normal before times. And a lot of times I would go in person. So I would go to the mayor's press briefing at City Hall or I would go follow him if he was holding it, you know, somewhere else around the city. Um, I would go to city council meetings where I'd be like the only reporter at sometimes at the oh. meeting. It's very like local reporting, local journalism. Right. Um, but I have the benefit of having the name Politico behind me, which is why people answer my phone calls. <laughs> 
Um, but during the pandemic, what happened was I was staying um, at my then boyfriend's apartment in Manhattan, and he was very gracious to let me stay there while he went home. Um, in, so I was there for March and April because I lived with two roommates in Brooklyn. I would either have to take a cab or a subway every day. And those are, well, the cab is expensive. The, you, the Uber well, is expensive. thankfully would pay for it. Oh, but it's expensive. <laughs> ah, it's on the company. Yeah, um, but, you know, we didn't know, there was so much we didn't know about the virus in right. March. Um, I was reading coverage from the New York Times talking about what was happening in Wuhan and then what was happening in Italy and watching uh, a mass grave being built in, I think, Iran. And me thinking, oh, that won't happen in New York. New York City has some of the best hospitals in the world. It's not going to happen here. Right. And New York City is the way it's built and the way it is so wonderful where you're on top of people. The subway takes millions of people to and from work every day. It's just a vector of disease. Yeah, that's the the side effect of it. All. Yeah, and like I would joke, I'm like, I take the subway. Like, how dare this virus come to New York and I'm not like able to be immune from it? I take the subway. I touch subway poles. Like, subway is really. It took it took a global pandemic for MTA to be like, maybe we should clean the subway. Governor Cuomo at one point said, "Can you believe that we're cleaning the subways?" You, we can do that? Who knew? And I was like, you weren't doing that the entire no, they time. Were not. They were not. They were not. I, you, you just see so many. And even and even in the subway now, I see, I still see uh, this, the standard subway trash, you know. But now we have the occasional mask on the floor. That's um, true. Which, sometimes which I makes see. Me just feel weak. It's just like, ugh. Sometimes I see, like, the floor is wet. And my yeah. first instinct is I don't want to be in the subway car because why is it wet? And then I'm realizing like it's cleaning, like somebody cleaned it. But that's not the instinct of a New Yorker who goes on the subway in normal times. Yeah. But anyway, so I was in Manhattan um, in this like, you know, beautiful apartment, was able to work and I was feeling really good. I was right. like, OK, I wake up. I would be on the phone with healthcare workers all day. And then it would be interspersed with Governor Cuomo's press conferences, the ones that maybe, you know, for anyone that's listening or for yourself, because there was a vacuum of leadership in Washington, there was no president addressing the nation. Governor Cuomo was able to take that space up. Yeah. And he became must-watch TV. He won an Emmy for... Wait, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, so Governor Cuomo was issued an international Emmy for his press briefings. And when I would talk to people and ask them, you know, what do you think about him? People would say, oh, you're going to see the president, President Cuomo. I love him. Like, tell him I said hi. And I was like, well, as a political reporter, like right. none of these people are your friends, right? Yeah. Like you put them in power to do things for you. He's doing the thing that you put him in power to do. Yes. Um, but it's just so stark when you look at the lack of leadership elsewhere. Yeah, um, exactly. And he rose to the occasion. And I think people came to trust him. They cared about what he was saying. He gave a sense of calm and order at a time when... We didn't have any. Um, and so, like, I would be in this apartment in Chelsea. I had a great view of the Empire State Building. The Empire State Building was red every single day for weeks. So normally, like, the Empire State Building's lit up with different colors. Um, like, if the Mets win, it might be, like, blue and orange one day or for St. Patrick's <laughs> all, Day. All, all, like, 50 times. No, yeah, exactly. Like, the five times. Oh, like. <laughs> um, and so it, like, changes colors and it's kind of festive. It just was this red, blood red color. And it was just, like, a beacon of despair. That every time I looked out the window, I was reminded, you're in a pandemic. The city is deserted. I would walk to Fairway. And I'd be the only person that wasn't homeless or having some sort of mental health issue on the street. Yeah. It was just, it was abandoned. I never, you know, I grew up um, like 30 minutes outside of the city in the suburbs. I've never seen it this way. My dad, who grew up in Queens, said the last time he saw it this way was the day after 9-11. Yeah. Like, there's really no precedent for it. So I was there looking at the Empire State Building that was blood red and hearing sirens. It was just like an orchestra of sirens day in, day out. It didn't matter what time it was. And so you get used to it. And I would sit in this apartment and I would write my stories. Um, and I would walk to the Javits Center when it became a pop-up hospital. Uh -huh. It was like a nice 20 minute walk. I would be the only person outside. I'd be like, wow, this is my daily walk outside with my press pass on. I would get my temperature taken when I walked into the Javits Center. And for anyone that's not familiar with New York City, the Javits Center I think is the nation's largest convention center. It's this giant glass building. Hillary Clinton had her um, party there 
for the day of the 2016 election because it was supposed to be like this momentous occasion of her breaking the glass ceiling, becoming the first female president. Obviously, (sighs) that is not what happened. Um, But that was kind of like the last time the Javits Center was really in the... um, public eye in this like political way right um so it became a fema emergency hospital that wound up not being used um to the extent that they were preparing it to which is great um because you can't imagine yeah yeah um that the hospitals were so overwhelmed that you would have to go die in the javits center yeah like what a horror um, so I would walk to the javits center I'd go cover the governor and I would yell at the governor and he likes it's funny because Mayor Bill de Blasio likes pointing at people and making sure everyone got their question. And then if he got everyone's questions, he'll go again. And he likes it orderly. Governor Cuomo will be like, I'm taking five questions. Whoever yells the loudest, I will answer your question. Oh. And I am Jewish and Italian. And I grew up in New Jersey. And I'm like, I was born for this moment. <laughs> this, is my, this is my time. And so I would just yell my questions. And sometimes I was, I was successful. Um, so I was covering stories like, if you were pregnant and going to give birth in New York City hospitals, your partner couldn't come with you. Yeah. And so I asked him, I said, do you support this policy? And he fiddled with his pen. He asked his health commissioner to answer. And a couple of hours later, I got a call from his team saying, we're writing an executive order to make sure that any pregnant person who goes to the hospital can give birth with their partner. Um, and that to me was the most meaningful day of the pandemic so far was knowing that I was able to hold somebody powerful accountable, ask them questions, make sure it was brought to their attention and fix it for somebody. Like I called two of my sources who told me like what their experience was was like, what they were going through with changing their birthing plans. Um, And one woman just burst into tears on the phone with me and said, thank you so much. I was dreading this. This was not the plan I had. Everything's so scary right now. Like this is the best news you could have possibly given me. That's powerful stuff. It was really powerful. And also, like, you couldn't have paid me to go into a hospital. I thought about that as I stood outside hospitals trying to get doctors to talk to me. Right. <laughs> at as some point. As, as they were leaving or coming in. Yeah, I figured I could stand. I'm on the sidewalk. It's public property. I can try to talk to doctors or other people that come in and out of the hospitals to find mm-hmm. out what's happening. Um, and that was kind of early on before I was able to build up my sources who were inside the hospitals. But, like, I wouldn't have gone in. I would have not gone oh, into right. To a hospital, but I had no problem going into a press conference to to do my job. And that's how I knew that I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm thankful that I've had that like moment of clarity while doing this, because being a journalist right now is such a hard job. Um, and so I'm happy that, I, you know, I, I think that's like my meaning in the world. It's just so interesting how everything happened from your perspective and from my perspective i we for two weeks there were wash your hand signs at work and then we i was in a rec basketball league and while this was being announced being like oh hey there's still there's a case in there's like cases in washington we played a basketball game and then five months later i texted my friend on the team and i'm it's it's like july and i'm like yo can you believe we played this basketball game and he's like man i i really do not believe any of this that we actually did it we thought that i mean at the beginning we we didn't know how serious or how in danger we all were we thought this was either like a because it was being spun as like a oh more powerful flu or whatever and at the beginning you're just like okay well okay, I wash my hands, I'm good. But then you realize like more and more down the road, it's like, oh no, there's more to it. It's like, wear your mask, like don't go near your family or anything like that. So when everything got like super serious, when the NBA got canceled, I was in Washington, D.C. because I was traveling to our alma mater, University of Maryland, to, like, to talk to kids about social media for a class. I come back to D.C., we're watching basketball, and the game gets canceled in the first quarter, or they just end the season. And now I'm stuck in D.C., which is not where I live, and that's not where my family lives. So I had a big decision, and again, my mom called me, and she was like, 
you could uh, go to New York or you can come home because she didn't know that I was in, I was in D.C. at the time. I didn't tell her that I was in, like not, she thought I was in New York and just hold up. And I was like, actually, no, I am states away from my home. So my mom offered me to make me food and stay for as long as I needed. But then I had this dilemma as well, because it was either, OK, now I risk getting my parents sick. And if I did that then I would never be able to live with myself or forgive myself. Or I stay in New York where I would be on my own with roommates and I don't know whether my anxiety can take living alone. So there's no right decision or wrong decision. Yeah. You know, so I chose going to North Carolina for five months, which I had one suitcase, so I started, so after I went through that suitcase, started wearing my old high school student section t-shirts, and my mom was like, oh, I remember that shirt, and I'm like, oh. (laughs) I saw none of my friends. I wasn't even planning. I was like, guys, I'm in the state. I'm not going to see you guys because, again, I'm not getting, I'm not risking getting my parents sick or anything like that. But then I also realized that I'm at the age where I don't think I'm ever going to be able to spend that much time with my parents that long of a period of time ever again, because I know that I'm not moving back to North Carolina. I don't plan on it any unless I have kids. And I'm like, let's go back to Raleigh. And then my parents are still there, or you know, and so I was able to, even though that it was basically a hellscape all over the world. And I know that in this public space of New York, where you have the sirens, where you have the red lights, it was just a, even more of a like apocalyptic feel. I was, I was like, oh, well, I'm with my parents. We're all together. And I'll never forget what my mom said afterwards when I was about to come back in August. I was like, okay, I, I just need to go back. I feel like I need to go back. And my mom said, I'm glad that you spent this amount of time with me because I just knew that you were safe because she would be worrying about me all the time and I'm like that's that's fair and but it was time to go I'm an only child and when I grew when I was growing up there was we had uh you know we had disagreements and everything like that so something you know I parents (laughs) yeah and I I don't like and I'm the first type of person that like doesn't like to be micromanaged at all so it was time to go and my mom was like you don't need to come home for Thanksgiving you spent so much time with us already for the year and I was like thank god because I'm not traveling during the holidays I was like I'm not going to travel for Thanksgiving or Christmas and it's so hard I mean like so like I said my parents live outside of the city my dad works in Midtown and he actually got COVID in March yeah and nobody knew he had it because the testing wasn't there Um, oh jeez so it's crazy because he my sister was living at home at the time and him and my mom lived together and share a bed and he got sick. My mom didn't get sick and my sister didn't get sick and they all live in the same house. Yeah. So there were so many questions around what is this virus? How does it work? How is it that somebody could have no symptoms versus have symptoms like my dad did, which is he had chills, a low grade fever, and then lost a lot of strength. You know, like he used to work out a lot and obviously with the gyms closed, he wasn't able to do it anymore. Um, but he got totally wiped. Um, but he's, he's healthy and has antibodies and is good. Um, and so it's just, it's so scary, just the randomness of it. And what's been really fascinating, um, with our pandemic coverage is that before the pandemic, I always cared a lot about equity. That was something that I took as a personal interest, um, The way I feel is that I'm not doing my job correctly if I'm not exposing who has power, who doesn't have power, and explaining why. Right. Why is it that a black woman in New York City is 12 times more likely to die than a white woman? Of COVID or just in general? Of pregnancy, of labor, of complications afterward. Yeah. How is that possible? Before COVID, that's reality. Yeah. So... It's important for me to talk about this, to ask why, to bring attention to it, because then I can try to fix it in a way of just saying, hey, like, this is a problem. Yeah, calling it out. Yeah, you call it out, and you also have to, like, shame people into acting, um, and that's the press is good at that. 
So those are things that I care about normally, but then what happened was the pandemic hits New York City. It didn't matter if you were Mount Sinai, which had the fanciest, one of the fanciest hospitals, or if you were the Brooklyn Hospital Center, which is considered the safety net hospital, meaning it predominantly treats people of color and it predominantly treats poor people. Okay. But it's not a public hospital, meaning like New York City Health and Hospitals, where you might go get a free COVID test. That hospital gets a billion dollars a year from taxpayer dollars, has an $8 billion budget, a billion dollars is coming from City Hall. Yeah. These smaller private hospitals who treat poor people or treat low-income peop- uh, low people and people of color, um, they don't get that subsidy. Okay. So everyone was suffering, right? Because all the hospitals were hit, people were coming to the hospital, but then which hospitals were able to rebound faster, which were able to get PPE for their workers, which workers got benefits or you know bonuses. Um, and so the pandemic, at first everyone was in the same boat, but then it became apparent that some people's boats had leaks in it to begin with. Right, exactly. And that's been, I think, a change that we're seeing in media, especially in New York City, when we talk about healthcare. Who has access? Who doesn't have access? Why is that the case? Um, and so those things, I think, are going to be really important moving forward. And it's been nice that people are actually having honest conversations about it because it was often the thing that was unsaid. Now... As someone that covers such serious and heavy topics like this, when I was researching, I read all the bylines and I was like, what do you do to kind of step back and preserve yourself, preserve your sanity? That's a good question. I'm happy that you asked that because I think I'm a pretty like happy, cheerful cheerful person. Um, Yeah, you are. But thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny because I I really like my work because I like that intensity. And I think I'm an intense person and it's nice to be able to apply it to something that has meaning. But then being able to be like, I'm going to go watch the league and be silly and like, you know, hang out with my friends and kind of be able to compartmentalize that. Right. Where the thing that could be a negative, maybe in social scenes, I'm able to say I'm going to apply this to work and I'm going to hustle. And I'm going to be really, really good at my job. <laughs> you know, like, I would pr- I prefer doing that rather than being like an intense person in uh, social circumstances. Um, so something that's been very helpful for me that I learned after the 2016 election. So Kofi and I are, are uh, a grade apart. We met in, at Maryland, but I yes. was a year older when we met. So I graduated college in 2016. And then the 2016 election happened five, six months afterward. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I just started my journalism career going into the Trump era. Yeah. Which is crazy. Um, and so what happened was I when I was at Maryland, I studied journalism, but I was also a history major. So I studied genocide, revolutions and ethnic cleansing, all the fun uh, topics. Uh. Um, <laughs> and so what was stressful for me was was watching Donald Trump's rhetoric and telling my friends, my family kind of reporting on it a little bit, like this rhetoric matches language from leaders before there is a genocide. Right. Like this is a fact. The UN actually has like a checklist saying if X, Y, and Z happen, it's genocide and we could label it as such. But it's after the fact. There is no list that says if A, B, and C are happening, this could lead to a coup, could lead to children in cages at the border, Right. could lead to Muslim bans. Everything. Everything. And so what was so frustrating for me was the fact that I was saying, hey, like, I study history. History is cyclical. These things are happening. So if these things are happening, those things could happen. And a lot of people told me I'm overreacting. Everything is going to be fine. The president of the United States has some decorum. Checks and balances. And as we're we're talking about this, we watched um, a mob descend on the Capitol yesterday. Yes. So... As, as, we were, as we're recording this, yes. As we're recording this. Um, so for me, I was having all of these stressors, these mental health stressors, and wasn't in a position where people were being helpful because I think a lot of people were in denial or just didn't under, didn't see what I saw. Right. Um, which is, under, is understandable. I, stu- I studied this in college for four years. And I thought, maybe it's time for me to see a therapist. Maybe it's time for me to talk about, you know, these, these anxieties and how to better do my job. And I'm so happy I did because it really helped prepare me for this moment with the pandemic. Um, and so what I realized was I'm a 
at the time I was covering like a trade publication. So I was writing about health technology and health insurance. Um, So I thought to myself, okay, my job doesn't require me to pay attention to what's happening, you know, at every moment in DC. I can read the New York Times article. I can read the Washington Post article. I can watch the news and pay attention and keep up. But like, I don't need to be on Twitter freaking out every time something happens. Oh, man. So I learned that early. I like would say, okay, I'm done with work. I might read an article or two or I paid attention on Twitter. You know, I read stuff while I was working. But when I was done working, I was done working. And I didn't watch the news. Decompressed. Decompressed. And thought... It doesn't matter that I'm freaking out about this, right? There's And there's a difference between saying I don't care and I'm not paying attention versus I can't put all of my energy into this thing that I don't have any power to change. Right. Very different things. Two different things. Yes, I agree. So being able to say, okay, like me freaking out about this, not going to help me, not going to help the situation. So as things have progressed under the Trump era, I would say, okay, I work at Politico and I cover New York. All I need to care about is what Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio were doing. That's it. I don't care what else is happening in any other state. Um, At the federal level, my job is to care about what's happening in New York. Um, And so that was just like a really helpful shift in thinking um, that that has helped me. I don't know if it would help somebody else. Um, And then the other thing that's been really helpful, again, like I mentioned, is I see a therapist. But if anyone learns anything from this podcast, the only thing I care about people paying attention to or remembering is that there's something called an EAP or an Employee Assistance Program. Okay. If you are employed and you have benefits, your company most likely offers an EAP. What that means is you could call a number or send an email and say, hey, I'm experiencing symptoms of anxiety, I'm experiencing symptoms of depression, I'm having financial issues, Um, anything that would cause some sort of like mental stress, you can email them and say, I need some help. Your company will pay for you to have three to five free therapy sessions for every incident. So an incident could be, you know, I racked up my credit card bill because I lost my job for a couple of months. or I'm experiencing anxiety because of, you know, the upcoming election. Whatever it may be, that's an incident, and that will qualify you for free therapy. And it's a really good stop, um, like a stopgap for people who haven't tried, you know, haven't tried therapy before, or maybe they're looking for a long-term therapist, but they need somebody, you know, pretty quickly. It's an amazing resource. It's really hard to find a therapist. It's even harder to find an affordable therapist. Especially one that, like, you feel comfortable with. I feel like, because what if you go and you go to the first therapist and you're like, I, I don't feel comfortable with this person. But that doesn't, that shouldn't shut the door on your opinion on therapy as a whole. It should be like, I should just find a different person. And this is pretty good because you could say, okay, I did a phone session with this one person. I didn't really feel a good vibe with them or they yeah. weren't helpful. The company will find you somebody else. Um, before the pandemic, they would be able to find people in your area and you would be able to go in person. Now it's mostly over Zoom or on the phone. Um, So there's even like a wider array depending on whatever the rules are for like virtual Zoom. Um, I know the federal government relaxed certain regulations that people can practice out of state, but there's some technical things around that. But people don't have to worry about that. I I learned that. They can use this program. I found out that if you have to be like a licensed therapist in that state and you can't, it's not the whole country. It's like you are a licensed therapist in New York and you have and to practice somewhere else. You have to like not go back to therapy school, but like get, get a new get license. A, I think. Yeah. Get uh, I learned that. I was like, Oh, I did not know that. That's what the, how that worked. But yeah. it is interesting stuff. Um, it's interesting stuff. And people, I think it's hard for people to talk about, right? Like um, I think I've had a lot of conversations with my friends who are saying, you know, I'm having, I can't sleep or I'm yeah. sleeping too much, or I'm having these these problems. And, like, it's it's so normal. We, we're living through a pandemic. <laughs> like, yeah. we're socially isolated more than usual, even though, like, we have these amazing technologies that could kind of keep us close. But for some people, it makes things feel further away. Um, in March, my family did the virtual Seder for Passover. Yeah. And we did it together. It felt very normal. I was like, oh, wow, I feel like I'm with my family. And... Some family members said it made me feel worse because we're supposed to be together and we're not. So, like, all of this... It's like, what? Not... It's just like, yeah, I could feel... But this is the the best I can get for now. 
but like I would, it just doesn't, it's just not the same. And you're comparing it to how it should be, right? right. Or like what's yeah. normal. Yeah. Um, and when you get stuck in that trap, everything feels bad. Oh, um, yeah. It's horrible. And so what I would recommend, I think, for anyone that's feeling that way is just to know that it's super normal. And I would recommend seeing what resources are out there for you. And this one I think is really great. And that's why I wanted to recommend it. Um, and it's pretty accessible to anyone who, again, you know, has employee benefits and whose employer offers it. But it's a very popular program. Thank you for uh, putting that on. I hope our I hope the listeners can um, appreciate that and maybe even take advantage of it. I hope so, too. I mean, like I write a lot about stigma in my job because yeah. I cover mental health. Um, and it's been interesting because I'm learning myself, like, how do you talk about these things where you're not embarrassing somebody or saying the wrong thing? Um, and people are sometimes afraid to share. And so I think it's important to try to keep an open mind and, and try to talk to your friends and check in and also check in on yourself. Like, you know, try to interrogate why you're feeling the way you're feeling and know that like everyone wants to help and that yes. like you have a support system who can help you. Um, and I know, especially like for men, it's also really hard. I've talked to a lot of guys about it, this. It's uh, it's interesting because, you know, if I, if I was in high school, the the stigma about going to therapy as a guy. If I was in high school, you know, that would like, people would say, oh, they would think it'd be like, it would show weakness or something like that. And that stigma just needs to go out the window. Everybody needs that, that third party to either give opinions or just like listen or help out. And I'm glad that there are more resources available, I feel now than even seven years ago, that make me feel like, yes, I feel like there are pathways for me to find the re the stuff that I need in terms of mental health, in terms of just needing a break, in terms of needing someone to talk to. But, you know, if I was, if back in high school, I was one of eight black kids in my grade in high school, there was like a hundred of us in the graduating class. And I didn't know that I could go to therapy because I didn't, no one, I didn't know if I needed it. Was this something you were thinking about saying, hey, I'm not feeling great? No, it's just like, is what I'm experiencing normal in high school? Like, is my high school experience normal? I didn't know that. Our guidance counselor wasn't very helpful. Who they, wants to go to a, like, the people that go to guidance counselors are freaks. They, <laughs> like, no, they gossip. They, they gossip? Our, our guidance counselor was like the main source of gossip. That's wild. School. And that's messed yeah. up. And this is the problem. My, my freshman year of high school, I had study hall and we would all hang out. No, not all of us. There's like 13 of us. And they would go to the guidance counselor's office and talk shit about other students. That's wild. And this is me being in a new private high school coming from a private middle school. And knowing like 12 people, like me trying to fit in. And then I sat, I sat there like, and then a couple of weeks later, I was like, this is, this doesn't, this is weird. Like, I, I don't know if I'm experiencing normal stuff as like a, as like a freshman in a new school. Mm. And I feel like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know what my guidance counselor is supposed to be doing. But I know that's not it. Um, Do you find that... I've heard this before from some guys, and then other guys are like, no, I don't feel that way at all. But that's hard to talk to your... As a guy, it's hard to talk to your male friends about, like, how you're feeling. <laughs> There's, like, uh, not that conversation happening. Um, Which is so silly to me, because as women... Like, women, we talk about all of this, but we're also socialized, too, right? Like, it's totally normal for us to be, like... I feel bloated today. Yeah. <laughs> and like men are not having any conversations from what I've heard about like, how am I feeling? What's going on in my life? Um, it may be like more meaningful ways that I think women have benefited from. I think it's the, the, the older I get and the more that I've like known my friend base, the more comfortable, like I feel like being like, Hey guys, I'm, I'm not doing all right. And then my friends will check in. So I'm glad that I've been able to find that kind of friend group uh, both male and female. How did you get there, though? How did I get there? Oh, it's just, like, going through shit. It was just, but it was just going through shit. It's like, what we, 
it's just being there. It's just through bonding experiences of like stuff that everybody has gone through, you know, whether it's like relationship stuff and when and a guy and your your friend takes you and gets quesadillas with you at three in the morning and then they then you repeatedly check in and then the more you know each other you're just like okay i know that something's not something's not right with you right now you're not you're not what you usually are what's going on talk to me like we do those now like and i'm so glad that we did that because in high school my friends like, I love them to death, but they weren't going to be like, hey, bro, you good? We would just have, like, roasting sessions and all of that, you know? And Do you think the culture, though, has changed since you were in high school? Yes, I think it definitely has. I think that it's definitely gotten to a point where it's okay to not be okay. Um, and it's okay to to tell your friends that. It's okay to talk about it. And it's okay to see the right people. And, man, therapy is important. And I feel like once... I feel like once one person in your friend group goes to it and they're, they like, they're like, yo, this, this was really helpful for me, guys. Like everybody should let everybody else, more people get on board and then their friends are friends. And I feel like that's just helped the entire like wave of more therapy into more like just mental health awareness as well. And just, you know, it's been, it's been better than, you know, back in those years. Do you think sports has played a role in that? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. I know that there have been a lot of athletes that have um, that have been really powerful in talking about mental health. The one that comes to mind most is Kevin Love. That's who I was thinking um, of, too. So that was, like, him speaking out about it as well. I mean, of course, when you have, whenever you have athletes in that kind of position talking about something that's so very important people are going to listen and i think that that can only help in terms of like getting people's attention about those those sorts of things so yeah i do agree as well um i do want to get back to the original question that you asked me which is like (laughs) how do i feel good and (laughs) we went on a, a dive um yeah but some of the things that make me feel really good and what i turn to when i'm having like a particularly rough day um in terms of like content of the stuff i'm working on yeah is there's an app called the sculpt society and they do sculpt society sculpt society and they offer like Pilates and yoga and like these exercises, but the exercise that I love. Yoga is, slaps, man. Yoga does slap. Yoga um, slaps. Is dance cardio. Okay. The woman who teaches it, she has like certain moves that are very repetitive. So you learn the moves as you do these videos and then she just strings them together. She's a former Nets cheerleader. Yeah. Um, so she's like hot and the videos are fun. And I do these, and I'm, the, I'm a bad dancer. I'm not good at it. My limbs are just flailing everywhere like Kermit. <laughs> and I love doing them so much. And I'm like, I'm in the comfort of my own home. Yeah, you, um, live, you live alone now. I so live not, alone no, now. Your roommate like, walks out and is like, what are you? I oh, have dancing. Ah. I have no problem. <laughs> Our, my former roommates from college who have listened to this have seen me do yoga and like, a sports bra and like my underwear. <laughs> like I have no issue, um, do like exercising in front of people. Um, but my dance cardio is so fun. It's so stupid, and I love it so much. And it really just like I feel so much better after yeah. I do it. So I try to prioritize like working out in some capacity. And the the videos are great because they could be as short as eight minutes or yeah. as long as an hour. So if I have like thirty minutes between an interview, sometimes I'll just do a dance cardio eight minute dance in the middle. Um, and it's, it just, I feel better. And I love going for walks and calling my friends randomly. You have probably been on the receiving end of you, these phone you calls. Love, you love walking all around New York City. It's my favorite hobby. It's so fun. There's so many things to look at. I get so many compliments from strangers <laughs> when I walk everywhere. I like, I live in Manhattan now and I love Brooklyn. I miss it so much, but there are so many more ice cream shops Near my apartment. <laughs> and so I'm like, I have to try all of them. So I have to go for walks now and figure out, like, what's what's the best ice cream place near me. Um, and it offsets, obviously, the dance cardio. So I've got to keep them mixed together. But I love walking around and I love calling my friends who are in different parts of the country. Yeah. It makes me feel better. I love connecting and hearing people's voices. So those are things I'm like, I know I am the kind of person that gets a lot of energy from, like, being with my friends. Like, I was sleepy when I came here, and I'm like, I feel like I had five cups of coffee (laughs) talking to you. Um, I just feel so much better when I spend time with people who I care about. Um, 
And then like the, obviously it's super important to stay connected to people, especially under a lockdown or if you're unable to travel and see people. So I'm in the book club, um, which we read like one book. It's every two months. So it's kind of like a good way for me to keep track of reading, even though it's something I already prioritize. And I'm like, I miss being in school and being like a loud mouth and being like, well, this is my opinion and it's correct. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't really do that at my job. So (laughs) I love it. It's so fun. It's with a bunch of other journalists who are exactly the same way as I am. So we just argue with each other about like the meaning of Britt Bennett having coffee shops in Crown Heights in the 80s. Like there were no coffee shops in Crown Heights in the 80s. And it's just like such minute details. And we will like spend 20 minutes talking about it. And so that brings me a lot of joy. Um, Yeah, and then I've been working on my novel, which was like a really nice escape in March and April where like, I was like, okay, I have like an hour before bed and I want to think about something other than what's happening. So I would, I would like miss the subway and I'd be like, I'm going to write a subway scene. Like (laughs) they're on the subway and the subway's gross and I miss it. And that was a way for me to kind of remember that this is the way it used to be. It'll probably go back to normal eventually. Eventually, Um, And so that was definitely a coping mechanism for me, but then I was able to put it, put that energy um, and a way of coping into something that's productive, which is, you know, one of, I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, yeah. when I was little, I was writing books, um, and putting together books. And, um, it's funny cause I was listening to your podcast with your mom and how your interests when you were younger seemed to really remain the same. And I was thinking about myself in that way of, I'm the exact same person I was when I was in elementary school. My personality is the same as when I was in middle school. My best friend, Carly, we've been friends since we were 11 and she lives in Brooklyn. Um, And we lived like in walking distance from each other before I moved. Somebody asked her like, oh, what was Amanda like in middle school? And she's like the same. I am the same person. (laughs) Um, I've just grown as like an adult and the person. But like my personality, my core interests have always stayed the same. And so... Um, I wanted to be a writer and I figured, well, I can't make a living off of writing books. So I guess I'll go into journalism. And that's yeah. like what I thought about when I was like 10. <laughs> I was like, can't, <laughs> can't make money off of writing books. Um, and so this has always been like a lifelong dream of mine. And so it was really, it makes me feel good knowing like I took a time where like I couldn't see anyone. I couldn't leave. I couldn't do much and was productive with it, even though it's totally okay to not be productive in the pandemic. Right. Yeah. I'm somebody Absolutely. that I function that way. Um, yeah. And so that's been making me happy. <laughs> I I feel like I do a terrible job of checking in with people because I feel like there's so many people from so many walks of life. And I think for me as a person, I'm like, yo, if we're friends and you don't check in with me for like eight months, it's fine. I know that you're busy. I know that you're out here doing all this stuff. If if I slip your mind, that's totally cool. Like I know that everybody has like stuff to do and focus on, and especially in especially in a pandemic where it's just like you're supposed to just focus. Well, you're focusing on yourself. You know, you're focusing on your health, your safety, your sanity. You know, um, how I've gotten through is I we played that game Among Us. With um, you've heard of it. It's I a, saw you tweet about it, and I went, "I don't know what that is." And then it's scroll like past. it's like um, it's like computer game. Um, the, the remember Mafia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like that kind okay. of. So me and some other friends from college, we would get on and play like all eight of us or nine of us, and that and that would be fun. And then I play mostly video games. It's been my like escape in terms of either Twitch streaming or um, playing. Call of Duty with my friends and being very bad at it. I have a question for you. When you're talking about, like, using Twitch. Yes. um, Yes. You're monetizing that, though, right? Like, that's in some ways you being productive, even though it's a relief for you. Yeah, it's it's always... Twitch has always been something that I've wanted to do. Uh, When I was in... When I was living in D.C. in, like, 2018, I tried Twitch out, but I didn't have... In my opinion, I didn't have the equipment necessary to actually put the most effort into what this Twitch stream could be. So um, when I went home, I built a computer with my dad. Very fun uh, passion project. We built a desktop and I was like, okay, now I have the streaming equipment able to um, do video game stuff. And 
it was good because it was like when you play Twitch, when you're on Twitch, I tried to, my dad was like, what's Twitch? I'm like, dude, okay. So imagine, imagine you're at an arcade. I'm like, yeah, you went to an arcade, right? It was the 70s, 80s or whatever. Imagine that you're at an arcade and someone in the arcade is going for the high score and someone goes, oh, look, this guy's going for the high score. Are you not at least a little bit interested in what that guy's doing? So then you go over and you like try to crowd around and watch. That's basically what Twitch is, but it's like infinite arcade high score people or whatever. So, yeah. But for me, it was just like, hey, I'm playing video games. I would also like to connect more with my audience and my followers. Um, so that's been just good. You you did it's like uh, opening a restaurant. You know, you have your regulars, you have people that just show up every once in a while and they're like, "Oh, hey, how's your Wednesday going?" you know? And it's Sophie, really... you do have the best analogies, I do have to say. Anytime I have a question where I'm like, <laughs> I don't understand this, you're like, this is how it is. I'm like, oh God, it's cool, great. And so, you never explain to me again. Sometimes my metaphors, um, we have a friend, we have a friend named uh, Michael Stern. Sometimes we do have a friend named Michael goes, Stern. Sometimes he goes, Kofi, this is one of your, this is one of your metaphors again. I'm like, yeah. He's like, are you following? He's like, no. And I'm like, that's fair. I, I, I'm like 50, 50 with these. Um, they've been getting better. They've been getting better. They've been getting better. Yeah. <laughs> We've been friends for eight years. They've been, getting a lot. <laughs> they've been getting a lot better. Oh man. But playing, being able to play video games is something I like to do. And being able to talk with people has been just... When I was living... I mean, I love my parents, but I they're, they're not going to be able to relate to everything that I do. So when I was home alone... Not alone, but when I was home with, like, my friends weren't there or whatever, I was able to play and connect with people that also did stuff that I was doing or related to or like, oh, I love this game. And then we talk about it or how their day is going or talk about because some of these followers are in like high school, college. You give them advice and everything. Be like, hey, take the SAT seriously. <laughs> As we learned from your your conversation with your mom. Yes. That was a battle. Yes, that was a battle. I was like, guys, take this to apply to scholarships. I was like, you know, and then there's also the other thing where it's like, <laughs> where it's like advice for art for my major, but not for you guys. It's like, hey, you're, for your major that you're going into, your GPA matters a lot. For for us at for us in the journalism school, it was our experiences outside of class mm-hmm. as well that tied into it. It was very important that if if you had a 4.0 and you took broadcast journalism but you didn't have we had like one internship that entire time then i feel like you were behind the curve of someone that maybe had a 3.0 but they've had like four or five internships and had all of those all those outside experiences because for for me at least when i graduated no one looked at my gpa because we're out of college you had the degree it's, it's in my parents wall or something i have I, a yeah. quick story about that yeah. so um uh, Dr. Chada at the University of Maryland's Journalism School brought some of her students in one of these like special programs um, around like media, self, and society to come to Politico's in New York's uh, office. And then like our newsroom is really small, um, but we have the big Politico science really cute. And she was asking me like, what's your experience? Like, what's the best thing you've ever done? Or like, what would you recommend? And when I was a sophomore, I literally would walk to Hyattsville from College Park, which was like a good mile and a half two miles but like the bus is never was the bus was never coming <laughs> so, oh, I would, yeah, yeah, so i would yeah. walk i was like it's <laughs> nice out you mentioned earlier that i love to walk you do That's so a- i would just walk to hyattsville and i would go knock on doors interview people for like my journalism class and story if i had all these stories and then i started pitching the local newspaper and pitching a blog so i was writing like i think like three to four stories a week during this semester sophomore year yeah and so i was telling them that and i'm like that's what you should do. Like, if you want to do the thing, go do the thing. <laughs> yeah. And then see if, like, somebody will take it. Like, I didn't make any money. They were pub- I, they published everything for free, but I was so happy that it wasn't just, like, homework. It wasn't, like, going in the garbage. I was covering these stories, and somebody was going to read it. And so I told them this told them this story. I didn't think much of it. And my boss was, like, looking at me with, like, crazy eyes. And I was like, what? what? And he goes. What's from? <laughs> and he was like, that is, that's the thing that we care about. Or, like, that's the important thing is, like, the hustle. 
And it nobody cares if you have a 4.0, but people want to see you like hustling, working your butt off and doing the thing. And so that to me was just like you had said that and it that, kind of sparked yeah, that memory. And that's, and that's, I'm glad that that's what our, that's what our broad, like our college taught us. You For know? sure. But you know this, I was, I was not the strongest writer in college. I Very, roasted you. Oh yeah. So hard. You roasted me to shape my freshman, freshman year. You like picked up like, what am I homework? Okay. Like, what you is left this? papers all over the lounge I did. with your writing assignments that were not ele- like I couldn't read it and if I did read it everything was spelled improperly and there was like poor grammar and, oh. I, and you got a C on it which was like a pity C oh, and I was, I was like Kofi how the fuck are you in this program I was coding it in man oh, was that I think that was uh I think that was what was that the, the that was the Merrill F class yeah that and you were definitely. like, I don't want to do this. I'm like, you're in the journalism program. This is like the intro <laughs> journalism class. What are you doing? I would, and I just wouldn't make fun of you. And it, like, <laughs> we're, we're still friends. So I, I was mean. like, I was like, oh, I'm a broadcast major. <laughs> and I was like, you need to know how to spell. And you were like, nah. <laughs> like, ah. And I was like, because that was at the time where I wanted to just be a baseball play by play person. And then like. A couple of semesters in, I was like, you know what? Maybe that I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe I should uh, take everything else a little bit more seriously. So uh, it worked out. You know, I'm on your podcast through through <laughs> through bullying, <laughs> through bullying, and through uh, no bullying. Um, but again, it's bullying with love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the last thing, I guess. We already kind of touched on this, but like, what advice would you give to someone that might want to do what you do in the future? It's really just like overall. Yeah. Um, it's doing it like, yeah, I was, I was reading this book and the person interviewed a professor of journalism and asked what's the, you know, what have your students who have left here, which ones have been the most successful? And that professor said, it's not the ones who were the best writers, not the ones who reign the most beautiful pros it's the people that are actually like hustling and want to do the work there have been so many times i work at politico it's like a a big national media outlet like i got my job when i was 20 26 25 which is like pretty good (laughs) um yeah yeah Yeah, and so like i write stories i will hand them into my editor and my editor has rewritten them like and there's nothing worse, Kofi, than you write a story, it gets published, and everyone goes, oh, my God, I love this line. This is so beautifully written. And I'm like, I didn't do any of right. that. Oh because none of that's me. Oh, and man. I think that's something that people don't know until you're in it is that, like, having a good editor is a huge difference. But you need to be able to have the skills and the desire to get it done. Yeah. And that matters more. Like, my boss has no problem being like, yeah, I'm going to rewrite your story because it's crap. But he knows that, like, I was thorough. I'm fair. I went to everyone that needed to I needed to go to. He doesn't have to question, you know, what's in it. Right. Um, and I wish I knew that, I guess, when I was in college. And I didn't realize that the thing that I that turns out I'm really good at was like the thing that's important. And I find that when you're younger and you are very career focused or very driven, sometimes you're focused on the wrong things um, because, yeah, absolutely. you know, your parents are telling you this is what you should be paying attention to. You're telling yourself this is what you think. Um, and it really is just kind of doing the work. Um, I got my job at Politico because I was working at like a trade publication. I thought it was I actually I thought the content was really interesting, but it was a very like nine to five job. I like when my sources call me at 10 o'clock at night being like, I have a story for you. I'm like, tell me what's going on. I have no problem leaving a restaurant to go take a phone call. Right. You know, maybe that'll change. I'm, I'm 27 now. So like that could change in the future. But for right now, I have the energy and I want to be doing that work. Absolutely. So I didn't love the nine to five job. So I said, okay, if I'm not like super happy about my job, what can I do to get to the next level? So I was freelancing. Um, I was helping my friend with her amazing newsletter called She Spends. Um, and I was just getting different skill sets that I was really just going into places where I thought it would be fun. I thought it would be fun to write about shopping. Um, and so I wrote a story about shopping and, you know, how Nordstrom was opening up a store that said it was a men's store. And I thought, well, what if I'm a woman and I want to shop in the men's department? Or what if I don't identify 
as a gender. Like, yeah. And am I going to not want to go into that store because it's already coded yeah. as a man's store? And so I asked the president of Nordstrom Stores, like, have you thought about this? And I wrote this, I thought it was a really great story, kind of interrogating this concept around the like the market of men's clothing and how it could be a standalone store, but then also gender is fluid. People dress, you know, you've purchased jerseys that are not men's jerseys. Nope, I have purchased women's hockey jerseys and I I just like they fit better. Yeah. Yeah. What happens if you're like, yeah, you know, they just fit better. Just, you should be shopping for your body, not because right. it says it's a man's or a woman's or a, I'm five feet tall. You know how many children's jerseys I have? <laughs> They're so much cheaper. Like, I will not be shamed into my XL child. <laughs> <jersey>. <laughs> and so that was kind of the idea I had. And so I wrote that story and the person who was, um, Dan Goldberg is one, I would say, like a mentor. He, I took his job when he got promoted, um, and he has a book out about the first black men to join the Navy called The Golden 13. So I, I'm going to plug Dan's book because Dan's amazing. Go for it. Um, but Dan told me, he's like, my wife picks out my clothes. I hate shopping. And I thought your, your story was interesting. And that story, I think, along with the fact that I helped launch a newsletter. So I was, and my job includes I write a daily newsletter uh, with my yeah. colleague up in Albany. So I had the newsletter experience. I wrote a story that was interesting to somebody who would not find the shopping story interesting. And I had this like technical business experience and it kind of caused me to get this job. And so I think the best advice I would give to somebody is like, do the things that you're passionate about. Don't try to say, okay, and you follow this like exact path and like work hard because I think people will give you the benefit of the doubt when you mess up if they see that you're working hard. Oh man, I, I uh, and <laughs> yeah, I've definitely messed up, uh, especially at, at like work. One time as, as an intern, I was at USA Today, and I was asked to be join a press conference for, you know, Andy Roddick, the tennis player. He uh, was doing a world team tennis, which is which is like not on like the Grand Slam tours, not like the Wimbledon or French Open or and I'm here not really not not really knowing that much about tennis and um the person that was uh, in charge of me was just like, "Go, oh, yeah, just go have, just like listen in, ask a couple questions. And I'm here on the press conference. I am a, how old was I? 18 year old at USA Today Sports on a press conference. And I ask probably the worst question to Andy Roddick. I go, how are you using this world team tennis to uh, prepare for the Grand Slams. And Andy Roddick just says two words. He goes, I'm retired. And I'm just like, oh, I should have definitely known that. But I'm like, at the same time, I get off the phone call. I was like, I did not know that you can retire from going to the majors and stuff and still play tennis. And I told I told my boss, I was like, uh, Andy Roddick yelled at me. <laughs> He didn't yell at me. He's like, Andy Rock kind of snapped at me. And then she was like, oh, no, it's all right. It happens. And I was like, does it, though? I don't know. <laughs> it's a learning experience. And then, oh, like, big learning experience. You'll never do that again. Oh, no. You know, like, no, that's, that's the great thing is, like, I've done so many dumb things. And, like, I didn't even know I was doing them half the time. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I made a dumb comment. Like, I should I should look this person up next time. It's just like. Yeah. You just do stuff and you think, like, this is the way to do it. And sometimes it's not. And somebody has to tell you. Um, and then you learn it and you don't do it again. Um, yeah. And so, and I think, again, the difference between getting fired in those cases, yours is, that's like a, a no big deal thing. But, like, if you mess up big time, the difference between getting fired and not getting fired is, like, do they see that you're not going to make that mistake again? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to ask me? but you didn't or we uh, didn't get to. Is there anything that you want to get to? Is there anything that you want to get to? Yes. It's up, it's I just, en I enjoy talking to you, <laughs> <laughs> but that's my favorite question to ask at the end of an interview because sometimes you remember something afterward. Sometimes the person wants we'll, to we'll, add something. We'll probably have you back on whenever. When, I'll come whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> probably just have you back whenever. Yeah. That, that makes, yeah, it works. Yeah. 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 Okay. See? Yeah. <laughs> When, okay, when the Jets, I can't, I was going to say no, that now. When the Jets what? When they, what? Who are they going to? Go to the playoffs? Like, I would, I would I'll be just, fine with that. I'll see you in like, that'll be like 2035. 
Um, I'm sorry. The, that's, I think, like, optimistic. <laughs> One of the mayoral candidates, Scott Stringer, he's, he's currently the comptroller, so he's, like, the money guy. He's a huge Jets fan. And his sons are Patriots fans. And he's like, I don't know what I did wrong with my life. <laughs> my, my children have turned against me. Look at them out here enjoying football. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously, right? And, um, and Scott was like, when the Jets win, there's going to be a big ticket tape parade. And I'm going to be mayor. And it's going to be a wonderful life. And I was like, I'm hopeful for you, Scott. Like, that, that sounds nice. Does, do they, it's like. Is, does the mayor have term limits? Yeah, <laughs> there are term limits for, <laughs> for being the mayor. Uh, uh. Not for the governor, though. Okay. New York, Cuomo could be governor as long as he wants. All right. Jets still might not win then, but... <laughs> anyway, One can hope. <laughs> anyway, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Chill McCofee. Amanda, thank you so much for joining. This was really a fun time. Thank you for having me. I had the best time. If you're a first-time listener, uh, feel free to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and or a comment. You can find this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and I put it on YouTube as well. Uh, you know, just expanding horizons. I learned After Effects so I can do the 60-second previews that have the sound waves, so it looks really uh, professional. Yeah. This is a professional operation. Professional operation. For sure. Yeah, definitely. But again, thank you guys for spending an hour of your time listening to me and one of my closest friends talk about public health and everything else basically and everything else yeah so thank you thank you so much as well again and we will see you guys next time until then bye